Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, how good you are. You are so good. I pray that as we hear stories like that, as Kathy shares, that you will grow faith in us, that you can do something in our lives that's impossible too. I pray that you grow our faith, grow our faith to know you, grow our faith that when we seek you, we'll find you. Love you. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for renewing our minds. In your precious name, amen. Amen, amen. I'm just so excited to share with you. I don't know what Kevin was thinking asking me to do this, but here I am. Here, here we go. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I thought about taking the morning off from the worship thing, and I don't know how to do it any other way than, than, to, than to come into the presence of the Lord and praise and worship and then share. I can't, do, I, I can't do the sharing without the praising, I guess. So as, as long as I can remember, I've just had a hunger for the Lord. I've just had a hunger for everything that, uh, everything that made him him, his truth, his love, his power, and the whole deal. I just knew I had to be close to him. And my hunger for him kind of culminated in my teen years, which was a huge blessing to my parents because I was such a good kid. <laughs> so great. Uh, but it was probably more of a blessing to me because my father, who attended West Point Military Academy, would have found a way to get me on the path to righteousness some way <laughs> or another. <laughs> so thank you, Lord, for drawing me. Thank you. You, you spared me a lot. But I remember when I was 14, like last year, and I was working through that weird dynamic of what's just religious rigmarole and what is true communion with God. And during that year, I just sought God every night for at least an hour. It's just something that I did. And I, I, a lot of it was striving and shadow boxing, I guess. You know how that feels, right? And then other times, many times he would show up and I'd feel him close to me and I would feel as though I could see things so clearly about my life and what I was supposed to do. He was closer than the hair on my arms, man, and I had just worked since then of, through building a foundation of being close to God and knowing his ways, knowing about him, all good. But at the end of the day, I think his desire for all of us is that we just love him. That we love him. That if I love him, yeah, I'm going to want to know everything I can about him. I'm going to want to start something to further his kingdom in this world. But it all comes out of a wellspring of loving the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about the presence of God, which for me is very much becoming the only thing I live for these days. And I have to warn you that I cry at the drop of a hat lately. It's just what God's doing in my heart. So if you see me crying, just cry with me. And, um, it's biblical to do that. And, um, uh, uh, and also, just a brief warning to that I never get asked to lead Bible studies or small groups, or anything of that nature, because I, I ask the deep questions way too fast, 
or I, I mean, like right in the front, I asked the sin ones, like, what do you struggle with? I struggle with this. And so I, if I was a dive instructor, everyone would come up with an embolism. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try, I'm going to really try to not do that. I think I might fail a little bit, uh, but we're going to at least try to have a nice even ascent up to the surface, okay? So I just want to share a few thoughts about the presence of God, of worship and praise that are foundational for me, foundational for my family and things that often come to the surface of my life. I'm just delighted to share them with you. So I went through a season in my 20s where I needed to explain God. Thoughtfulness was the most important thing. If I believed it, I needed to draw a line to Scripture to tell you why I believed it. If I had a conviction about something, I really needed to tell you why and explain that to you. And a lot of it was, uh, was birthed out of being quite frustrated with Christians who didn't care about explaining. They just wanted to do and feel and experience and all that. And that frustration actually turned into bitterness for me. Um, this whole nasty thing that God delivered me from because that was an awful six years of my life. So I'm out of it. I'm so glad. Um, but through that, I realized there are two places that we place ourselves. There is, there is I think, it, it's I have to know, cognitively know, that whatever this is, is true in order to believe it and have it impact my life, right? And then you have, then you have the feelers, over here, and I've got to feel it to believe it. If it's not giving me goosebumps, then don't talk to me. Don't, don't, don't bring it up. And I know that God designed us all different. Myers-Briggs, all that, I totally, I totally get that. I have a friend who has to think very intentionally about how he's going to offer love, and then he does that, and he's really good at loving people. So I understand that. But I think that when we decide that we're one or the other, we look at the other one and we get a little bit kind of afraid of that other side. So if I'm a feeler, I don't want to belabor the thinking thing too much because that's just going to, that's just going to turn me into a robot, right? Uh, is the fear a little bit. And then if I'm a thinker, then I've got to be really careful about how much I feel because that could mess with my clarity and I'll eventually become a hippie, which, which inevitably become a hippie. Hippies, hippies are the antithesis of robots, point one. Write it down. But I think it's important that, that we embrace, embrace a truth here and put these both on the same level, not just poo-pooing one another and saying, oh, you're important, I'm important, God loves us all, but acknowledging that we each individually do both of these things, right? We do. And, and, uh, and that way, we'll be able to have this conversation a little, little more forward. Um, I've been to two weddings this summer, and the officiating pastor led with this analogy that love is not a feeling. Love is a action. Love is a verb. It's a DC Talk song. Down with the DC Talk. Tick, tick, down with, um, and I get that. I totally get how we need to actively love our spouse, but I feel oftentimes it just sets us up to inevitably wait for when the feeling goes away and I will just have to, out of obedience, verb love at my spouse. 
until death does us sin. And then, and then we're in. But, I mean, when, when my wife actively loves me in a way that edifies me, I feel it. I don't think, I don't think loved. I, I might verb love back to her, but I do that because it, I f- I'm feeling it. It resonates with me. When someone trusts you, you don't think trusted. Right? I, feel, I feel trusted by you. And I might have to think about what I'm going to do with that trust now that I've earned it. And when God comes into the room, I feel him. And when someone comes into the room, yeah, you have, you have a cerebral awareness that they're there in the room with you, but it is an awareness of a presence that I can embrace and interact with. So the primary goal of the Bible is to teach us God's ways. We all agree on that, right? And I would like to suggest to you that the primary thing, the most important thing that God is trying to convey through his entire word more than his worldview, because we get that, we see it, we know it, is that he interactively, directly interacts with humanity. That I am with you. And that's why the whole thing starts in a garden, with God walking with Adam and Eve at night, communing with them, walking with them. He tells Noah that he's going to destroy the world, gives him wisdom and a design to build an ark to save creation. He shows Abraham one night. He said, look up at the stars. Look, look there. Your descendants will be more than those. And Abraham doesn't have any kids. Abraham's too old. His wife Sarah is too old to have a child. Yet God makes a way for Sarah to bear a child at over 90 years of age. He delivers the Israelites from Egypt. He parts the waters while the Israelites are running from the Egyptians. They get across to the other side and get away from them. God, prepare, God provides a chariot for Elijah to take him up to heaven. And it's not just for the noteworthy either. As before Elijah was taken up, there was a woman and, and her son that Elijah met that uh, they, they were running out of food. It was a time of famine. They had food left for one day. They said, we're going we're gonna to make a meal. We're going to eat it. And then we're just going to wait to die because we have nothing, have nothing left. And Elijah prayed for her and her son and God expanded their pantry. He gave them food. He gave them food to eat and they, they survived through that entire famine with enough. And throughout the Old Testament, God directly interacts with prophets and kings. He grants wisdom to Solomon, giving him a hearing ear to hear his voice and know how to lead the kingdom into a new season of unprecedented peace and prosperity. And these are just little snippets of the Old Testament. It's just littered with this, that that God is saying, I'm here, I show up, I do things. The best example of this culminates in Jesus, born to earth, not just beaming down, he's born into earth. God in flesh, living among us, knowing or showing us his ways, showing us the heart of the Father, dying a violent death on the cross, tearing the veil between his active presence all of the time in the temple and letting it out into this world, rising from the dead in the same body, ascending into heaven and sending us the Holy Spirit to be our helper is just this one-two punch of I am with you, I am with you, I am with you, Emmanuel, God with us. And I think it's so important 
that we lay hold of this truth. God interacts with us on an organic level pertaining to us. He comes and he shows up because many times, I think why it's important is because many times in our Christian walk, the concept alone satisfies us so much that we're not motivated to seek out what the concept is pointing to. So, so the, the concept of exercise is really invigorating if I think about it, right? Imagine how strong I'll be. But it doesn't, it doesn't, really, do, it doesn't really do anything unless I actually embrace the thing that's within that concept to do. The thought of eating, eating well really sounds good. I'll actually be able to sleep at night. This, this is amazing. And, and, uh, but then just not, it's not going to make me healthier unless I make a change. And I think in the Christian life that the thought of God interacting with us is amazing. Just the concept alone is, is incredible. But Christianity isn't about the concept. It's about the active ingredient within the concept. That we, that we are to seek, and then we find. We knock, and the door is opened to us. It's, are you with me a little bit? It's not, it's, not, it's not the concept of the blood of Jesus that washes me clean. It is, it is the actual blood, the red cells, the white cells, the platelets, the water that came in contact with our atmosphere 2,000 years ago, that is the cleansing, cleansing agent for our souls and the antidote for death. It is that. It is not the thought of it. It is that. It's the blood. It's so important that we lay claim to this, that we, that we start stepping away from the concept, that we say, that we say, God, you exist. And you are to be experienced, experienced, that Jesus' blood is real, that he paved the way, for eternal life. And I, I think faith and hope, and I'm going to hold on to this and do this, even if I don't know it's true, is really beautiful. And I think God is in that. But the whole point of seeking him is that we find him in this life, not just when we get to heaven and we say, oh my, oh my gosh, it was true. It was true. I'm so glad I blindly followed that. But that we know him now, that we experience him now. That his presence meets every deficit in your life and the deficit of those lives around you. God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven for the glory of his name. And I hear a lot lately uh, in the church at large with, with lots, of, lots of different Christian conversations that, um, that our nation is going down the tubes and that um, we better just hold on and, and convert as many people as we can before things get too bad and our Christian values are under attack and I really feel like the Lord isn't up there or with us right now sleeping. I really don't feel like he's sleeping. I don't. I think his response to that is, I am with you. I am. The blood will never lose its power. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. Behold, I am making all things new. Arise, shine, for your light has come and his light is in us. We're not just the moon reflecting 
the lights raised. Matthew, Matthew 5? Yes, Matthew 5. I, uh, uh, you are the light of the world. I think if we looked in the mirror every morning and screamed that at ourselves, that we'd be better for it. You're the, li- you're the light of the world. You are the light of the world. The city on a hill shall not be hidden, so shine. And it is so important that we do that, that we stop approaching God from the point of the problem. God, God help us, help that, and start approaching the problem from God's presence and perspective. Okay? So if you could open to 1 Chronicles 15. Just put your finger in there. The spot. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just going to give a brief history of the Ark of the Covenant. And I love history, so I'm going to pretend to be a history teacher for a second. So let's, let's tell, it's, let's tell a, uh, what's, what's that line? I don't even remember what that's from. I need to do it in an accent, I think. It's, it's, uh, let us tell, what is, yeah, let us tell an old story anew and see how well you remember it. I think, I think that's from Sleeping Beauty or something. So the ark is the chest that God commanded Moses to build um, that, that was, at the time, the manifest presence of God. Whenever we think about the Ark of the Covenant, the way that they thought about it back in that day was the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of the Lord are the same thing. They didn't worship the Ark, but the presence of God rested on the Ark. It was in the Ark. So it's really easy for us to think about it that way. All right? Inside the chest there were three things. A jar of manna, the bread that God gave to, uh, to the Israelites while they were starving in the desert. So God gave them fresh bread every morning. So there was a jar of that. There was Aaron's staff that budded when God chose him for a specific purpose uh, and his tribe to do something. And then the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. And the people of Israel carried the ark with them everywhere they went. And many miracles happened as a result of the ark, really the presence of God being with them. The Israelites needed to cross the Jordan into the promised land. The time had finally come, um, but they couldn't cross the river. And so God commanded the Levites to carry the ark on their shoulders down to the river. When their feet touched the river, the waters were held back and the Israelites crossed into the promised land on dry ground. This is the second time, actually, that God parted waters for them. Uh, when they got there, they needed to conquer the city of Jericho. It was a very fortified city. The walls were too high and too thick. The, si- the city was locked up. They couldn't do anything. So God uh, told them to march the ark around the wall a specific number of times for six days. On the seventh day, do the same thing. Stop and then shout. And the walls, when they shouted, just came down. It just came, came down. And they took the city. Uh, in 1050 BC, the Philistines uh, captured the ark, but they returned it seven months later uh, because when they put it in their own temple to their idol, their idol would literally like fall on its face to the ark of the covenant, and it did that enough times that it broke into pieces. Um, and uh, uh, the the Philistines also experienced some pretty bad afflictions during those seven months. There was a plague of mice that came and this freaked the Philistines out, so they gave it back. <laughs> They're like, our bad, sorry, uh, you can have this. And it was like their war prize too. We conquered you, but you can have this back. We don't want to have anything to do with your God, 
right? So the Israelites got it back. It took them a little while to figure out what to do with it uh, until finally it was entrusted to a guy named Abinadab whose son was sanctified to keep it, to offer sacrifices to it, to maintain it. And Saul was king during that time. And he didn't really care for, for the ark. Uh, many translations say the presence of the Lord um, like they had in the past. And um, uh, he brought it, he brought it into battle the first time he faced the Philistines. Actually, and I don't know if that was, if that was to taunt them. Like, hey guys, remember when you had this and it gave you nationwide hemorrhoids? <laughs> True story. That's what ha- that's pre-Walgreens. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so Saul, Saul just brought it out to taunt them, was too impatient to consult the ark most of the time. And then David becomes king and the whole game changes. And David loved the presence of the Lord. He messed up a lot, but he's a perfect, perfect example of what living in the presence of God looks like in that he faced up to the wrong he'd always done. He understood the power of repentance. He understood the power of worship and praise. And so he becomes king. He's praying, reflecting, meditating, listening to God. And God gives him a revelation, which he records in Psalm 51. He says, you do not delight in the sacrifices of bulls and goats. I see that now. You aren't delighted in burnt offerings. In other words, you're not delighted in just going through the motions of coming to my temple and communing with me. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit Indeed, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. And as a result of this revelation, David says, we, we need the presence of God with us. Let's go to Abinadab's house. Let's get the ark back here. Let's get the chest of God back here and set it before the whole nation to see and surround it with round-the-clock worship. And this is the gold standard of the exact opposite of what the nation of Israel thought was appropriate to do. So there was a lot of fear around the ark at the time. For good, for very good reason, people had gotten messed up or killed as a result of mistreating it. Idols fall before it. We keep it covered up because the last people who gazed upon it with impure motives were all killed on the spot, all 70 of them. Uh, But David made a case for it and the entire nation of Israel agreed that it was the right thing to do. So they made preparations to move it. And in 1 Chronicles 13, we see them go to Abinadab's house they take the entire nation of Israel. So this is like, this is like, like, it's the entire nation of Israel. It's big. And uh, they, they go there, they put it, they set it on a brand new cart pulled by oxen. There's a procession, large marching band. And in about verse 10, it says, in the procession with the chest of God, the Ark of the Covenant, David and all Israel worshipped exuberantly in song and danced with a marching band of all kinds of instruments. And when they came to the threshing floor, a field, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah, who was walking by the chest, reached out his hand to grab the chest from falling off. And God erupted in anger against Uzzah and killed him because he grabbed the chest. He died on the spot in the presence of God. And David lost his temper, angry, because God exploded against Uzzah. And the place is still called to this day Perez Uzzah, which gives you an idea of what happened to Uzzah. And David was terrified of God that day. And he said, how can I possibly continue this parade with the chest of God? So David called off the parade, stored it at a farmer's house right there where that whole event happened, a guy named Obed-Edom. 
and he took a three-month break. And that's where we pick up in First Chronicles 15, verse 1. So three months went by, and David had built houses for himself in the city of David. He cleared a place for the chest and pitched a tent for it. And then David gave orders. No one carries the chest of God except the Levites. God designated them and them only to carry the chest of God, to be available full-time for the service in the work of worship. David then called everyone in Israel to assemble in Jerusalem, again, to bring up the chest of God to its specially prepared place. And he mentions the names of the people who had specific responsibilities. He looks at the Levites who were to carry it, and he says, the first time we, we did this, you Levites did not carry it properly. He's still a little bit upset. And God exploded in anger at us because we didn't make proper preparation and follow instructions. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the chest of God of Israel. The Levites carried the chest of God exactly as Moses, instructed by God, commanded. Carried it with poles on their shoulders, careful not to touch it with their hands. And David ordered the heads of the Levites to assign their relatives to sing in the choir, accompanied by a well-equipped marching band, and fill the air with joyful sound. And then he spends about eight verses mentioning the names of the security guards, the names of the people in the choir, who the musicians were, who was carrying the ark. Verse 25. Now they were ready. David, the elders, David, the elders of Israel, and the commanders of thousands started out to get the chest of the covenant of God and bring it up from the house of Obed-Edom. And they went rejoicing because God helped the Levites, strengthening them as they carried the chest of the covenant. They experienced a miracle because the chest was very, very heavy. And they weren't used to carrying it all the time. And so God strengthened the Levites to actually be able to carry it. So they stopped in that moment. They sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. They were all dressed in elegant linen. David, the Levites, carrying the chest, the choir, and the band, and Kenaniah, who was directing the music. And David also wore a linen prayer shawl called an ephod. And on they came, the entire country, all of Israel, on parade, cheering, playing every kind of instrument of brass and percussion and strings, and they did it. And the story goes on and shows us an unprecedented time in the life of Israel where the ark was, or the tent that the ark was in, and the things that happened, the sacrifices that happened were in view for the whole city to see, that for most places in the city, you could see smoke coming up from the altar in the daytime, and by night you could see the torches of those who were around the ark worshiping and singing praise to God. And so the significance that I want to draw our attention to is how the Ark of the Covenant was carried. And I don't want to don't oversimplify this, but I don't, I don't want to overanalyze it either because I think there's a very, very important truth hidden here. So in chapter 13, they place the Ark on a brand new cart. It's pulled by oxen, same grand parade and procession, and it doesn't go well. And in chapter 15, the priests are carrying the ark on their shoulders, being careful not to manhandle it. The priests, the priests are carrying it. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. I have made you priests 
What's the point? The presence of God does not rest on the vehicles we build for it. It rests on the shoulders of people. Nothing made with our hands, nothing that we have started, no matter how organic, the presence of God rests on you. God has chosen, God has called, he has washed, he has sanctified you and me so that his presence can rest upon us and be carried with us. I love that. I love that. And the wonderful part of being the carriers of his presence is that we can carry him with us everywhere we go. And that, that can violate some of our ideas of boundaries. <laughs> um, uh, we really like boundaries in this country. And there, uh, don't get me wrong, there are some really healthy boundaries to have and there are really unhealthy ones. And the one that I guess I caught myself doing a couple years ago was I had a place where I could bring love that really suited me well. And then there was a place where it was best if love just didn't come in because that was undermining me a little bit. Where I could bring God and then places where it was just best if I didn't consult the Lord before, before I did something, before I went there. And I feel deeply in this season that God is bringing his whole church now a very specific thing that he's doing is that he's raising up a people, all the people who are alive now, that actively, intentionally carry the presence of God with them wherever they go. To our work, to our home, to the restaurant, to the restroom. I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be irreverent. To our internet browser, to the pub, to the health club, to our bed at night, to our emotions. Everywhere we go, we take the Lord with us there. And he gives us eyes to see how he sees that, that situation, how he sees our reaction, how he sees what it is that we're doing. And then he renews our mind. And I would encourage us all, if there was one challenge that came out of this, I would encourage us that if there's a place that I feel uncomfortable about taking the Lord with me, I maybe shouldn't go there whether internal or external, let's be people who continually allow the presence of the Lord to find its resting place upon us. I find that a life truly bent toward God is always marked by encounter. That's just, that is just a fact. The Bible lays it out. The presence, presence in the Bible literally means face. So, so if I experience the presence of God, I experience him face to face, and I don't seek to encounter him. I seek him, but in seeking him, it leads to encountering him. I heard something really great a couple months ago. Uh, a pastor was saying, I, I don't seek his hand, uh, I seek his face. But if you find his hand, just look up and, <laughs> and, be, and be grateful. But the best way I know how to find him is through praise and sacrifice. And so as I close here, I just want to offer up three practical points that are impacting me in this area. Uh, and so the, the first one is that praise leads to encounter. 
When Jesus shows us how to pray, he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Excuse me. Our Father who art in heaven, who is like you? There's no one like you. In you, all things are held together. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. There is peace forevermore. At your name, blind eyes are opened. The deaf hear, the lame walk. In you, I am washed clean. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And John tells us in Revelation that the most prominent thing in heaven is the presence of God. The whole place is lit up by his glory. So your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven is really inviting him and asking him to affect the earth with his glory. And it's in this prayer that Jesus shows us that his presence coming on earth is preceded by praise. And I've got I've to trust that he's on to something. I've, I've seen it. I've known it to be true. The second one is God often leads us out of our comfort zone to himself. And this one uh, can be made uh, can be used to make a case for expressive worship, especially among reserved Scandinavians. I try to I try to stay away from that. I just don't don't go there, uh, uh, though it's appropriately applicable. <laughs> it goes both ways. I mean, when God says, "Clap your hands, all you people! All you people, uh, shout shout for joy with a voice of praise," He's not just talking to the extroverts, right? He's talking to everybody. And now I've become very comfortable with expressive acts of worship and seeing the power in it many, many times. Uh, but just recently, since I've been at this church, God's been calling me into a place of solitude and silence, which is a major sacrifice for me to quiet myself. I know you have a hard time imagining that, but I do. It's just hard. But he has led me into that season, and it has been very transformative in his presence where I just stop and listen, and I, I know that, that leading us out of our comfort zone, leaving our comfort zone and experiencing him is a real thing because God designed everything we do to rely heavily on posture. So if I want to offer love to you, there is a specific posture that I take. If, if you want to be heard by somebody, there's a specific posture that you take, right? And and. It's just organically God's design. It's just how, he, just how he did it. And so I know that the principle, I have to believe that the principle of leaving my comfort zone will put me in a place, will, put, will posture my heart in a way where I can experience him and hear from him. And the last one is that God responds to brokenness and humility. There's a vineyard song from the 90s, love the 90s, that has stuck with me since, since I heard it. And I sing it a lot when I'm just, just seeking the Lord on my own. And it starts with, bring a breaking in me. Reduce me to love. And I think this is a major key in staying within God's bounds and God's space and God's design for us to live. I kind of get this picture in my life being littered with red flags that I've put up myself when I did something stupid. Like, like, this is when I was really proud. 
of myself and it didn't go well. This is when I said something dumb and it didn't go well. And I've got long stories that remind me never ever to get close to that flag again. (laughs) But as I reflect on the space between the flags, I just see, I see that God has really led me to a place especially these past 11 years where full reliance on him just isn't an option anymore. I feel like the more broken I am, the more put together I am, not in the self-deprecating way, but in a way that the more pride and self-reliance that is stripped away from me, which sometimes requires getting broken, the more goodness, the more of his goodness I behold. I was praying with a group of people last week and um, a woman in that group started telling the Lord how much she loved him and she said Lord I love you I love you I love you I love you you are my heart you are my heart and I heard her say that I just went oh that's how I feel <laughs> you're my heart there's no going back now I love you. You are my heart, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, Lord, you will not despise. And that's my desire, is that we come to him, the living God, with a heart willing to sacrifice anything he asks us to, and that in our brokenness, we're made whole by his presence working in and through us. Amen. Amen. I ask you to stand. So I, I, I've had boldness growing in me um, all week to pray, to pray for two specific things. Um, and, and actually, if the prayer team, if you guys could come down, we, we offer prayer at the end of every service. Um, and so if afterwards you would like prayer for anything, whether it's anything to do with the presence of the Lord um, or anything else that's going on, I just invite you to that. And so how I want to close this morning is, and, and prayer team, you, can, you guys can go ahead and come up. That's, that's okay. You guys can come up. Is um, I think it's a good thing for us to pray for those who have never experienced the presence of the Lord. You've never experienced him close to you. Again, we're not seeking his hand. We're seeking his face and a desire to be close to him and know him in an intimate way, which is the whole, which is the whole payoff for our faith is that we're in right standing with the Lord and we get to, we get to meet with him. So I want to pray for you. If that's you and you're saying, I've never experienced God, I've been seeking him this whole time, or maybe you're here and you're saying, I haven't even made a decision to be a Christian, but now I know that I want to. If I can experience him, if I can know him face to face, then I want to do that. And so I want to pray for you. If, if, you, if you've been walking this path and you haven't felt him, and if you haven't made a, a decision for him, but now you're going to do that, I invite you in your heart to welcome his presence into your life. And I want to pray for us. I also want to pray if you've been walking through a dry season in your life where you've been following the Lord maybe for a long time and you just haven't sensed him close for a long time, I want to pray for you too. Pray that God graces us with his presence that we walk out of here knowing that he's close to us. So let's pray. Let's pray. If you find yourself in that spot, 
like I said, it's, it's not about going through the motions. It's about posturing our hearts. So if you can, just raise your hand and say, oh, Lord, I need you. If you're in that spot, then let's do that together. Father, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for the peace. I thank you that in you there is fullness of joy and peace forevermore. I thank you that the way that you desire to be with us is to actually be with us and not just have us have a head knowledge of you, but experience you in whatever way we're built, whether we're thinkers or we're feelers, that we experience you and we meet you face to face. And I pray, Lord, as you have done for me in my entire life, that you will grace us with your presence in this moment together that you will grace us with your presence that you will be close that you will give us eyes to see to see the way that you see things that you will pierce our ears so that we can hear your voice holy spirit come and be close to us i pray for those who are just saying now i want to make a decision for you father i pray that you fill them up with your holy spirit i pray that you meet them where they're at i pray that you give them clarity around around how you see them i pray for chains to fall off in jesus name i pray for those who have never experienced your presence that you touch them and come to them right now that they walk out here, walk out of here, and they experience a new season in their life that's measured by you. I pray for those who feel that things are dry and cold and dark and unsustained. And I pray for you in Jesus' name that he will come close to you, that you know that he is a good father and he is not just committed to bringing you along, but he's committed to holding you. I pray that for you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and give you everlasting peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you as you go.